listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome back. I am glad you're here. I mean, I'm always glad you're here, but I'm especially glad you're here today because I'm just really looking forward to sharing my conversation with Johan Hari, who is one of the wonderful people in the world. Uh, he's also one of the famous people in the world, interestingly enough. Uh, it's funny, I mentioned to Roman, my son, that I, I was having him. He said, whoa, you got another one of those, you know, five-star Sam Harris guests. It's interesting. You know, I've been listening to this podcast uh, called Dead Eyes, which is this very funny, interesting co- podcast, really clever. Um, if you're looking for a, sort of an entertaining podcast, it, it, it's so good. And it's basically the quest of an actor who was fired by Tom Hanks from the miniseries Band of Brothers. After He auditioned, he got the part, and later he got called by his agent and said, they don't want you anymore because Tom Hanks says you have dead eyes. And it totally derailed his life and career. And, you know, 15 years on, he's, he's, he's finally trying to track it down. And, and, and what's interesting is at the end of each episode, because uh, he, he's talking to all these people, like the person who was the casting director on the podcast, the guy who got, actually got the part. And in every case, he's like, do you have a relationship with Tom Hanks? Because he's trying to get to Tom Hanks to find out what really happened. And uh, I guess deep in my heart, I'm always trying to get to Sam Harris. I'm always hoping that somebody who knows Sam Harris, who I talk to, will call Sam and say, you know, I think you'd really like Bart. You should talk to him. You know, at the end of the those articles were like, you can have a dinner party. Who would you want to be there? And, you know, it's always Ingersoll and Sam Harris. And uh, I don't know. Marianne Faithful? I, I don't know. I don't know. I just read an article about Marianne Faithful. She has nothing to do with my life. Uh, but Johan Hari does. He's written two of the books that have been the most influential in my life, Chasing the Scream and Lost Connections. The one is about addiction and the other is about depression. And in, in both of these books, he, he really challenges conventional wisdom uh, in a very thoughtful and scientific way. Talks to a lot of people. Uh, voluminously documents all the people that he talks to because of some weird stuff in his past that makes him a voluminous documenter. So anyway, we'll get into all that on the show, but but the interview is so long, I'm not going to give you a quote on the other side, but I'm going to give you a quote on this side because I came across this quote uh, the other day. I was, I've been tracking down inspirational music. I need inspiration. So I've been tracking down all different kinds of inspirational music, kind of making a long playlist, which I will ultimately share. And, and maybe you'll have additions to add to it once you hear the kind of stuff I'm, I'm after. But uh, in the midst of that, I came across Jewel. Now, you might say everybody knows Jewel, but I had never listened to Jewel. I, I, I didn't know. I, I'd heard of Jewel, but I thought she was like a young pop artist. I didn't realize that she was a mature country singer who's done all sorts of stuff, has this incredibly weird backstory of growing up uh, in the middle of nowhere, Alaska. And, and, and I also didn't know that she was somebody who really cared about making things better for young people that are struggling with abuse and anxiety and depression and all these things. So, so there's sort of a connection as I'm listening to. I'm getting ready to, to drop this episode and I'm listening to this Jewel stuff. 
and 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 I read up on her website. It's called Never Bro- Jewel Never Broken, and it's 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 really a helpful site for for people that are struggling. And there was a quote. Jewel said, "We are not in the business of fighting darkness. We are farmers of light." And I thought, "Wow, that's beautiful." Farmers of light. I thought that's that's right. We got to be more positive. And then all of a sudden, I thought, "Wait a second. I love you, Jewel, but that's wrong. Like we're not all in the business of fighting darkness, but somebody better be fighting the darkness." I mean, Johan Hari. Like, listen, don't get me wrong. He farms a little bit of light himself, but he is a fighter of darkness. He is a guy who goes after bad ideas with a big stick, and. I think you're going to see that he does it from a, a heart of full of love and and, 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 ge- and generosity. But some of us are fighters of darkness and some of us are farmers of light. And maybe ideally all of us are doing some, some combination of the two. Maybe we're a little bit more on the dark fighting. Maybe we're a little bit more on the light farming. Uh, anyway, I, I, it's just a good reminder to me because I, I used to, back in the church days, it was the same thing where somebody would say something so beautifully that it would sort of cover over the fact that it was total bullshit or that it was only half true or that it was, it, it, it was universalizing something that was very particular or generalizing something that was very specific. And so, Jewel, you may not be in the business of fighting darkness, but Johan Hari is, and he's done it really well. His, his two books, Chasing the Scream, Lost Connections, hugely influential in my life. And his TED Talk, Everything you know about addiction is wrong. 20 million views or some crazy number like that. He's really changed the conversation. And I think you're going you're gonna to see how good he is at changing conversations. So without any further ado, this is me talking with uh, my hero and now my sort of kind of friend, Johan Hari. So, so here's a funny thing. Like, um, I don't usually like I don't usually interview people. I usually just talk to them. Um, uh, but you're kind of a, you know, you kind of have this like background of like, you know, you grew up in London, working class, you know, and then you went, you you had this like distinguished academic career and became like this big time journalist and wrote these fancy these like very influential books. And, and you're working on a third one, right? Or you're, you just finished it? I've just finished it, yeah. Literally yeah. just finished it. Amen. I'm so, I, you look so happy. <laughs> um, and so, but, but what's funny is because I've read those books and followed the career, I find like myself, like the first thing I thought when I saw your face is I just want to go like, so how you doing? <laughs> uh, are you okay? Like it's been COVID, you know, like, how's it, you know, I, I really do. Like I feel the way you write makes me feel connected to you oh thank you there's a i think there's a a thing about if you make yourself vulnerable in public if you lower your guard uh, some people will exploit that vulnerability to take a punch at you but much more many more people will lean into you and and it's a difficult thing to do making yourself vulnerable in public it's it's it goes against your instincts uh, all of our instincts i think but it has a power and part of that power is that there's a kind of intimacy then to how people approach you that's really um moving yeah 
Yeah, no, it's funny. I was talking to a young woman last night um, in the middle of our country who is, is kind of, it, it would be, it's hard to almost, I, I was talking to her and I said like, you know, you're in slow motion suicidal ideation. Like she's mm-hmm. literally in a very, in a very deliberate way trying to figure out if life is worth living or not. And, and she, she reached out to me because she heard a bunch of these podcasts and sort of my vibe um, mm-hmm. is that, you know, she's a person who was a person of faith and then lost her faith. And like on the other side of la- la- faith, a lot of times people struggle to put it together and figure out like, how do I make sense of this? And uh, as we were talking, um, I had recommended to her uh, Brene Brown's book, Daring mm-hmm. Greatly, and she, and she yeah. read it. And she was totally not buying the idea of vulnerability. Um, it had been her experience that vulnerability had not worked very well for her. Um, and so we had this whole conversation where I was trying to explain to her the idea that unless you're vulnerable with somebody, they have no sense that they can have anything they can offer you. If you seem to have no needs, they have no way in. Um, mm. And and they're afraid to share their vulnerability with you. So like you terrify them and they have no kind of way to connect with you. And it it was really a lot it was really interesting talking with her because it was it was so counterintuitive to her. She had never heard this idea of vulnerability. That's so interesting because well for a lot of people, vulnerability is well, vulnerability is always risky because the nature, the definition of it is you're you're lowering your ego walls, you're opening yourself up to people, and you know what you're saying makes me think a bit about some of the people, the scientists I interviewed um, from my book Lost Connections about um, psychedelics and the the renewed scientific research into psychedelics because there's a really interesting part of that 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 research, which is of course what psychedelics do, and there's a big debate about how and why, many aspects of this debate, but one of the things psychedelics do is they switch off the parts of the brain that relate to ego, right? That relate to thinking about yourself as a bounded individual. And obviously, in the way this has been reported on, rightly, there's been a lot of emphasis on the positive aspects of that, you know, and we can talk about those positive aspects. But I remember one of the scientists who worked on it saying to me, when you look at someone under the influence of psychedelics, you also see why we need an ego, right? I mean, you wouldn't leave someone who's just, you know, taking a load of LSD to just even walk around the street on their own, right? So you see, and I thought that was really interesting because too often it's it's couched as, you know, um, oh, psychedelics switch off your sense of ego and that sets you free. And that's how we should try to live. But actually it's a more, what, what we need is more complicated. Now it's true. Well, psychedelics give you some relief from your sense of ego, which in a culture like ours, which is extremely individualistic and is constantly pouring a kind of ego itching powder over us, that is liberating. But the goal is not, I think, to be egoless. The goal is to have a healthy and permeable sense of ego, a sense of ego that that, that, that shows that your ego exists in relationship to a wider, um, you don't make sense as an isolated individual. You only make sense in interaction with others, but that's not no ego, right? And I think that's an interesting division. And I think the insight this, this, the person you've been talking to is seeing 
It may be related to that. It may not be, but... Selective vulnerability. Yeah, selective vulnerability. You don't want to be vulnerable all the time. Sure. And actually, I would go further than that. If your experience in your life has been... I mean, think about something as simple as... Uh, and dreadful as sexual abuse. If your experience as a child is making yourself, allowing yourself to be vulnerable and that vulnerability being exploited and uh, and abused, or even something less um, uh, monstrous than sexual abuse, but still terrible, like just just cruelty towards a child from adults. You know, if your experience of, of vulnerability is that people exploit and abuse it, it will, it, every intuition you have will be um, to- Don't do to, don't do it, right? It will seem absurd. It will seem like a fool's errand, right? Um, and and that's not yeah, wrong. So, it, it ha- that, so it, no, no. So it has to. You know, it's funny. Like as a counselor or as 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 a, as a mentor of young people, I have to use intentional self disclosure. If I don't tell them anything about myself, it's overwhelming, and it, it, you know. But I have to tell them things about myself that will be helpful to them in 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 building the relationship, will make them feel comfortable, will normalize an emotion. You know, I'm not there to sort of say to a young person, oh, l- let me tell you about the erectile dysfunction problem I'm having with my wife. Last night was really a dr-. – like th- th- they don't need – that's not for them. Like I- I'm not there to unload on them. I'm there but, – but, but there's a point at which – Intentional self-disclosure, intentional vulnerability is really important. And I think you, like- Essentially, because as you say that, I, I, you really make me think about, I think it might help, help to think about this, is um, a group of people I've been following for, I think, about five years now. Um, and if there's something I'm going to write eventually, I'm, I'm writing, at some point, I'm going to write a book about how and why people change. I'm really interested in this question. And... Um, there's a, a group, you, you may have read about them, lots of people will have heard about them. Um, they're a wonderful group of people. So in, um, I forget the year, but you'll remember that California, prior to the Supreme Court judgment on this question, California had a referendum on whether to legalize gay marriage. Right. And unexpectedly, the gay oh, marriage Oh, you're talking lost. about, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, David Fleischer. Yeah, he's a great friend of mine. I, I had David. him on the podcast. Oh, uh, yeah. He's he's a wonderful, he's a he's great just, person. David's truly, amazing. Truly wonderful human person. Yeah. Normally what happens in politics is when you lose, you go back to your supporters and you ask them, you know, what you could have done more. But Dave's insight and other people who were based at the LA LGBT Center was quite different. They said, well, Actually, we need to approach the people who didn't vote for us and we need to find out why. And, and, and the process of doing that, they then evolved a technique that's now been studied in great detail. So initially, they just turned up people's doorsteps and said, you know, some variant of, hi, we're gay. Uh, how did you vote in the gay marriage referendum? And people said, I voted, yeah. yeah. Uh, if people said, I voted for gay marriage, they, marriage equality. They just said, great, thank you, bye. But it was the people they, who didn't vote they wanted to have conversations with. And initially, they just sort of said, well, why didn't you? And they, that yielded some interesting conversations, but quite quickly they learned that actually what worked was exactly what we're talking about, being vulnerable. So they would tell a story about an experience in their own lives. And they would ask, have you ever had an experience like that in your life, right? So, um, but what, what, what was fascinating was, it, it, as Dave said, it, it was that forming that emotional connection that was the opposite of judgment, um, and then 
try, and then trying to elicit reciprocal vulnerability, a kind of emotional matching in the other person, then led to a real breakthrough. And anyway, a really important outcome of this is it was then scientifically studied. And this technique is incredibly effective at changing people's deep, minds. It's called deep canvassing. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. And and to circle back to your point about the person who might have been victimized, the vulnerability thing, I, as, as you were talking about that, I found myself thinking about leprosy. Mm. Um, because what I learned, like leprosy, what it does is it eliminates your your ability to feel pain. And you say, well, what a great thing, eliminate pain. But it turns out that pain is what tells you to take your hand out of a fire. Pain is what tells you that you're pushing against something that's too hard or that, and so without, pain is a gift, if you will. Um, and if you, if you don't have it, you, you, you'll go places where you'll be fully damaged. And, and so it, it feels like vulnerability or, or guardedness Gardeners is sort of like pain in the sense of like, it tells you like, this isn't the situation to, to let your guard down. But if all you have is that guard, you have to be able to sort of calibrate it and turn it on and turn it off. And, you know, that, that seems to me to be the thing that as a parent, I know I, that, that's the, one of the hardest things to teach your children is you don't want to tell, teach them not to be trusting of anybody. You don't want to teach them to trust everybody. So you have, it's all about like, well, in this situation, you do this. In that situation, you do this. It's like when to shift a car. Like when do you shift from second to third gear? Uh, it, it's, it's a feel. It's a, but if you don't have it, you're really, you, you, you're really in trouble. Yeah, there's a British psychoanalyst called Stephen Gross who, who wrote a brilliant book called The Examined Life where he he talks about lep that exact leprosy analogy. There was a moment where that insight from him really landed with me actually in my own life. Um, it's really stayed with me. It really helped me to, it changed my thinking about my own depression. I was in Vietnam. Um, I was doing some research for another book I have yet to uh, finish writing, which is a biography of Noam Chomsky. And I was, anyway, I was tracking down various people Chomsky had met in Vietnam. And I had this brilliant Vietnamese fixer called Huang, whose job was to kind of you know, help me find people, translate, that kind of thing. And we were going around and we, we, we were, we were, usually I was staying overnight in Hanoi. And one night I got back and I was really tired. And I was walking down this alleyway and I, I saw someone who was selling fruit. And I'm really bad at haggling. So I paid like $5 for an apple or something. And I would go back to the hotel and I, and I knew like, you know, good traveler's advice. You've got to wash it in bottled water. You can't just eat it. So I washed it in bottled water and I started to eat it. And uh, it tasted foul. <laughs> like there's something wrong with it. And it really tasted like chemicals. But I was so hungry, I ate like half of it and chucked it away. Anyway, the next morning, I was like violently sick. I will spare you the details, but like really, really sick. So I basically spent three days in bed. Uh, I, I, so I was watching CNN for almost the whole time and I still associate Anderson Cooper's face with projectile vomiting, which is slightly unfair to him. But I, so I was like horribly sick. But you know, I basically lived for like many years on fried chicken in East London. I was like, this is not my first time at the food poisoning rodeo. I know what to do here. You just drink fluids and get through it. It got to the end of the third day and I didn't have that much time left in Vietnam. And I said to Huang, look, um, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to take some Imodium. We've got to go and do some more interviews. So he had lined up some interviews with survivors of the war, Vietnamese survivors of the war, um, about five hours north of where we were, I think. So we, we go on this long drive, 
We get there. I'm interviewing this woman who's in her 90s, I think, or late 80s. And she was the only woman from her village who survived the Vietnam War. So I'm sitting there talking to her. And as she's talking, I'm sitting on the floor. And as she's talking, I've never had this sensation before or since, thankfully. I literally felt like the room was moving around with my head spinning. And suddenly I've got this on tape somewhere. I just explode like a bomb of like vomit and shit all over this woman's heart, right? And I'm just like, like, like all over her heart, right? And it's just awful. And I'm just lying there for like 20 minutes. And she says something to Huang and he translates and he said, this woman says you're really ill and I need to take you to the hospital. And I said, no, no, just take me back to Hanoi. I'll be fine. And he said, Johan, this is the only person who survived the Vietnam War in this village. I'm going to listen to her health advice over yours. We're going to go to the hospital, right? So we go to this hospital where I was the only European they'd ever had. And Huang like outrageously lies to them and says, this is a really important European. If he dies, it will disgrace Vietnam. So they they treat me and I'm lying there and they're sort of jabbing at me. And and the doctor, um, I don't remember he spoke English. I think Huang was translating for him. Yeah, Huang was translating. Um, the doctor's asking me all these questions and I felt this really extreme nausea. And I kept saying to the doctors, give me something to stop this nausea. And the doctor said to me, you need your nausea. It's working for you. It will tell us what's wrong with you. And I remember thinking, oh, that's really interesting. It'll be really annoying if I die and I never get a chance to think about that. Um, anyway, it transpired what happened is because I hadn't retained any fluids for three days, my kidneys had stopped working. It was like I'd been in the desert, basically. Um, and so obviously they rehydrated me and they did everything you're meant to do. And just when I went to leave the hospital, I said to the doctor, out of curiosity, what would have happened if we had gone, if I had just driven back to Hanoi? And the doctor said, oh, you would have died. You would have died on the journey. And I'm thinking, if I had had a drug to suppress my nausea, I would have suppressed my nausea and I would have died on that journey back to Hanoi. And this is, of course, not to say that nausea is a good feeling. Nausea is the worst feeling in the world, right? It's horrendous. One of the worst feelings in the world. But it's absolutely necessary. And it really helped me to think differently. I'm sure we'll talk about in terms of depression, anxiety, addiction, even the language we use. Things like I just read an article today in the newspaper uh, saying... Uh, anxiety disorder has gone up under COVID. Think about even the choice of language. Let's say anxiety has gone up under COVID, right? Which it has for perfectly understandable reasons, like we're frightened of the virus that might kill us. Uh, we're more financially insecure. We're more lonely. Or perfectly reason. No, we say anxiety disorder has gone up. It's profoundly delegitimizing of people's pain, right? It, it, to say you've got, to, I would argue, if you're really lonely and you're financially insecure and you're threatened by a plague, it would be a disorder if you were not anxious. Right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And you know, a, a lot, a lot with a lot of the people that I that I find myself talking to, it's incredibly validating when I say to them, "Of course you're depressed. Like how, or of course you're anxious. You have you have circumstances that would cause you to be anxious, and, and like." Sometimes the symptoms or those signs can become so overwhelming that you can't work on the thing. Sure. But so so we may want to, we may want to try to address your symptoms, but really we got to address the loneliness and 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 the the causes of it. Which you know, I mean we're into lost connections territory right now. 
Baby, I think what you've just said is so true. The single most important thing I learned about depression and anxiety from the, you know, more than 250 scientists I interviewed and people all over the world who were responding to depression in different ways was your pain makes sense. You feel this way for reasons that are entirely understandable. And it's only when you understand that your pain makes sense that we can begin to trace it to its roots together and we can begin to find wider solutions. Yeah. But yeah. what we've done is we have profoundly delegitimized people's pain, right? Through a series of different stories saying it's a sign of weakness, it's a sign of craziness, it's or it's purely a biological malfunction, although there are some biological components, that we've been taught to think about our pain and distress as if they were malfunctions. In fact, they are signals. Or moral failings. You know, like, yes, or, or, exactly, or, yeah. Yeah, and so if we have them, we must get rid of them because they are an impediment to our lives. And, and yeah. you know, your nausea was telling you something. Um, it's interesting too, because the other, the other thing, of course, is your nausea was telling you something. So was the wise lady that you were interviewing. Huh, that's interesting. You know, which is another, uh, another kind of information that we get where sometimes people see us um, and they know something. I, I think I think just as a community builder, one of the things that I'm realizing is, is that you know sometimes people will say to me like, well, if if community is so important, um, you, you know, you make it sound like people can live. In it. I said, yeah, like without it, like I mean, you would think that if we're really social animals, hardwired in these ways, that then given our present society and the amount of isolation that we feel and the technological barriers between us, that you'd have a bunch of people walking around like anxious and depressed. <laughs> well, given that, fact, like we you do, pandemic levels of anxiety and depression, <laughs> that would be uh, there's a bit of a clue there. And so that's the funny thing about the pain thing is that people, what I can't understand is how people haven't figured out that it isn't working, that whatever we're doing isn't working. When you have the rising amounts of it, it would seem clear to me that you've got a structural problem. Like like the the way we are living is not working. For most people. Well, but people it works for told, some people, but it's not Yeah, but people not, have not been most. told... Um, people have been told really oversimplified stories about why they feel distressed. And they've internalized those stories. Um, but, you know, think about my own experience. When I, I was a teenager and I went to my doctor and I was really depressed. And my doctor didn't say to me... And my doctor's a perfectly nice person, but didn't say to me at any point, is there any reason you might feel this way? I mean, a really the most extraordinarily basic question, right? Uh, my doctor said, well, we know why people get like this. There's just something wrong with your brain. Uh, and all we need to do is give you some drugs. And I took some drugs that gave me a bit of relief, but didn't ultimately solve the problem. But that hunger for a different way of thinking about this is been, it, it's just so close to the surface. Everyone knows they have natural physical needs. You need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be in real trouble real fast. But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And this culture we've built is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive today we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs. And it's the key reason, not the only one, but it's the key reason why we have these enormous epidemics of addiction, depression, and anxiety at the moment. And it's so interesting to me because what you're saying about, you know, some people say to me, I don't need community. It makes me think about 
group of people I got to know who, in a sense, you know, obviously I learned a huge amount about the science of anxiety and depression, but the people who taught me the most actually were, were not scientists. They were good people. Um, if it's okay, I'll just tell you their story. It doesn't take long, but it, it, cause I think it illustrates so many of the themes that you talk about and are talking about. So in, in the summer of 2011, on a big anonymous housing project in Berlin, a woman named Nuria Cengiz, a Turkish German woman, climbed out of her wheelchair and she put a sign in her window. Nuria lived on the ground floor in this housing project and the sign said something like, I got a notice saying I'm gonna be evicted next Thursday. So on Wednesday night, I'm gonna kill myself. Now, this, this housing project, it's called Cotty, is, you know, an anonymous housing project like one all over the United States where no one really knew anyone. And there were three groups of people who, it, it, it always been a poor neighborhood. And there were three groups of people who lived there. There were uh, Muslim immigrants, like this woman, Nuria. There were gay men and there were punk squatters. And as you can imagine, these three groups didn't get along, but no one really knew anyone anyway. So people started to walk past Nuria's window and they were like, oh, this, is, this woman's gonna kill herself. So people knocked on her door. They said, do you need any help? She said, screw you, I don't want any help. I'm gonna kill myself. She shut the door in their faces. But people stood outside her apartment. No one knew her. People stood outside her apartment and they started talking. And a lot of people were being evicted from this housing project. The whole of Berlin was gentrifying very quickly, but this area in particular. And they were worried for their own apartments and they were worried about this woman. And one of them had an idea. There's a big thoroughfare that goes through Cotty into the center of Berlin. And one of them had the idea, they said, you know what? On Saturday, if we block the road and we have a protest, the media will probably come. There'll be a bit of fuss. They might let this woman stay in her apartment. And there might be a bit of pressure to stop our rents going up so much. So Saturday came and they blocked the road and a load of the residents came out. And Nuria was like, I'm gonna kill myself. I might as well let them wheel me into the middle of the street. So they did. And Nuria gives these interviews to the media. It becomes a bit of a news story in Berlin that day. And then the media leave and the police say to the residents, okay, you've had your fun. Take down this barricade you've built. But the people who lived at Cotty said, well, hang on a minute. You haven't told Nuria she gets to stay. And actually we want a rent freeze for our entire housing project. When we get that, then we'll take this barricade down. But of course they knew the minute they walked away, the police would just tear it down. So one of my favorite people at Cotty, a woman named Sandra Gartner, sorry, Tanya Gartner. Um, uh, she, Tanya is a, a very funny person. She's, uh, she's one of the punk squatters and she wears these tiny little mini skirts, even in Berlin winter, she's quite hardcore. Tanya uh, had this idea. In her apartment, she had a klaxon, which are those things that make loud noises at soccer matches. She went and got it. She said, okay, everyone, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna drop a timetable to man this barricade 24 hours a day until we get what we want. There's gonna be at least two people manning the barricade the whole time. If the police come to take down the barricade before we got what we want, let off the klaxon and we'll all come down from our apartments and stop them. So people started signing up to man the barricade. People who had never met and would never have met. So a very unlikely pairing. So Tanya in her tiny little mini skirt was paired with Nuria, who's a very religious Muslim in a full hijab. And they got, if I remember right, they got the Thursday night shift. And they sat there and they were like, we have got nothing to talk about. This is super awkward. Uh, who could be more unlike each other than us? And the first few nights they didn't talk. But as the nights went on, they started talking to each other. 
Tanya and Nuria discovered they had something incredibly powerful in common. Um, Nuria had come to Berlin when she was 15 years old, sorry, when she was 16 years old, from a village in Turkey, and she'd just had two babies. And she came with the purpose of earning enough money by working two jobs that she could send back for her husband who was still in Turkey to come and join her. And sitting there in the cold in Koti with Tanya, she told her something she'd never told anyone in, in Germany before. She'd always told people, because a year and a half after she'd arrived, just before she got enough money to send for her husband, she got word that her husband had died. And she'd always told people in Germany that her husband had died of a heart attack. Actually, he died of tuberculosis, which was seen as a kind of shameful disease of poverty. That's when Tanya told Nuria something she never talked about. She came to Cotty when she was even younger, when she was 15. She got thrown out by her family because she loved punk. And she made her way to live in a squat in Cotty. And very soon after she arrived, she got pregnant. Tanya and Nuria realised that they had both been children with children of their own in this place they didn't understand. They realised they were really similar. Um, these pairings were happening all over Koti. There was a young Turkish-German lad called Mehmet who kept being nearly thrown out of school because they said he had ADHD. And he got paired with a very grumpy old white German guy called Dieter who said he didn't believe in direct action because he loved Stalin, but in this case, he would make an exception. And, and Dieter started helping Mehmet with his homework when they did the shift together and Mehmet started doing much better. These pairings were happening all over Koti, directly opposite this housing project. There's a gay club called Zudblock, run by an amazing man called Rick Hutchstein, who, who um, to give you a sense of what this club is like, it's pretty hardcore. The previous place he owned was called Cafe Anal. <laughs> I always thought you would want to have a, a sandwich from Cafe Anal. And th this club had opened about six months before the Cotty protests began. And when they opened it, you can imagine there's a lot of very religious Muslims in this neighborhood. Um, their windows have been smashed. There've been a real pushback. But when the protests began, they gave all their furniture to the barricade. And after it the protests had been going on for about six months of being continuously manned, the Zudblock, this gay club, said, you know, you guys should have your meetings in our club. We'll give you free food and drink. And even the progressives at Cotty were like, look, we're not going to get these very religious Muslims to come and have meetings uh, underneath posters for things so obscene. I think I probably shouldn't mention them on your podcast, right? But as one of the Turkish-German women there, Neriman, said to me, we all realised we had to take these small steps to understand each other. The meetings started to happen in this gay club. They started every week. They happened every week. After the protest had been going on for a full year, they had actually built the barricade, because a lot of them are construction workers, a lot of the people who live there. The barricade was turned into this full building with like entrances. It's really nice, right? And after it was going on for about a year, a guy turned up at Koti named Tunkai, who was in his early 50s. And it's clear when you meet Tunkai that he's got some kind of cognitive difficulties and he's got uh, some difficulty speaking because of his palate. And he'd been living on the streets, but it was very quickly, he started hanging around. And it, Tunkai has this amazing, lovely energy about him. He always, he's always hugging people. And he quickly united everyone, the Muslims, the gays, the punks. Everyone liked him. And when they realized he'd been living on the streets, they said to him, you know, you should come and live in this this thing we built, it's quite nice. We really like you. So Tunkai came to live there and he became a much loved part of the Koti protest. Nine months later, when the protest had been going on for nearly two years, um, the police came to inspect. They would do this every now and then. And uh, Tunkai doesn't like it when people argue. He thought that the police were arguing. So he went to try to hug the police officer. But the police officer thought he was being attacked. So they arrested Tunkai. That, that was when it was discovered that Tunkai 
have been shut away in a psychiatric hospital, often literally in a padded cell for 20 years. He'd escaped one day, he'd been living on the streets and he'd made his way to Cotty. So the police took him back to this psychiatric hospital at the other side of Berlin. At which point, the entire Cotty protest turned into a free Tungai movement, right? They descend on this psychiatric hospital at the other side of Berlin. And, and the psychiatrists are like, what is this? They've got this person they've had locked away for 20 years who hardly anyone came to see. And suddenly they've got these very camp gay men, these women in hijabs and these punks demanding his release. But I remember one of the protesters, Uli Hartman, one of the women at Cotty said to them, yeah, but the thing is, you don't love him. He doesn't belong with you. We love him. He belongs with us. I remember thinking, how many of us, if we were, you know, carried away uh, to a psychiatric hospital would have like huge numbers of people descending on the hospital demanding that our return, right? Um, because you don't love, because, because you don't love him and we do. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, many things happened at Cotty that I learned from. Um, they got Tunkai back, took a while, he lives there still. Um, they got a rent freeze for their entire housing project. They then launched a referendum initiative to keep rents down across Berlin. It got the largest number of written signatures in the history of Germany. There is now a rent freeze in the entire city of Berlin. But the last time I saw Nuria, she said to me, look, the woman who'd started all this, she said to me, look, I'm really glad I got to stay in my neighborhood, right? That's great. I gained so much more than that. I was surrounded by these incredible people all along and I never knew. And to me, I remember one of the other Turkish German women, Neriman, saying to me, you know, when I grew up in Turkey, she said, I grew up in a village and I called my whole village home. And then I came to live in the Western world and I learned that here, what you're meant to call home is just your four walls. And then she said, this whole protest began and I started to call this whole place and all these people my home. And she said she realized in some sense in this culture, we are homeless. You need to feel you belong. And our sense of, of, of home in this culture is not big enough to meet your sense of belonging. You know, um, the Bosnian writer Alexander Heyman said, home is where people notice when you're not there. Right, by that standard, a lot of us are homeless. And to me, it was so clear in Cotty. You know, think about how distressed these people were, right? Nuria was about to kill herself. Uh, Tonkai was uh, shut away in a padded cell. Mehmet was about to be thrown out of school because he had ADHD. They said he had ADHD. Um, loads of these people were depressed and anxious. They did not need in the main to be drugged. They needed to be together. They needed to be seen and valued. And I remember Tanya, sitting, I was sitting with Tanya one time in Cotty and her saying to me, you know, when you feel like shit and you're all alone, you think there's something wrong with you. But what we did is we came out of our corner crying and we started to fight. And we realized we were surrounded by people who feel just the same way. See, see, what's interesting is like, I love that story and I hate it at the same time. Oh, why? That's interesting. I love it because like it's a movie in my head. Like it's it's this beautiful, I can see the swelling music at the end as they're all standing there. Like I get it. And that is, I think, this fundamental human need. What What frustrates me about it is, is that the vast majority of the people that I know that are disconnected 
are not just disconnected. They're disconnected partly because of the society that we live in and the way it walls us off from each other and the amount of media they're consuming that keeps them from even looking at the people next to them on the bus and in their neighborhood or in their family, in their home. But the other part of it is, is that when those two women were sitting at the shelter, something about where they came from, something about what happened to them gave them a certain kind of social skill that they were able to articulate their feelings, their connect, their stories to each other. They were able to connect. And I mean, like that was my frustration with the whole second half of Lost Connections was like, Every story was beautiful and extraordinary. There was some leadership that was shown. There was somebody that cobbled together a situation that, that enabled people to connect or that forced them to connect. And I just thought like, yeah, but what about this guy I know who's really inarticulate and whose family hasn't taught him any skills of, of asking another person a question. And he, he doesn't know how to listen. He doesn't know how to make eye contact the way you're doing right now, a nod. Um, when I was work as a college chaplain, I would often have incredibly gifted students who I had to teach like baby step by baby step just how to have a conversation with another person and how to keep track of what the person had said so that the next time you saw them, you would ask about their mother since they had told you a story about their mother. And they would be like, this is groundbreaking. This is amazing. No one has ever shown us this. Um, and so what, what, what crushes me sometimes about these stories is, is that I, like when you say, oh, sh the guy at this club, he's an amazing person. And you go, Katya turned out to, like, or, or like, um, you know, Nuria turned out to be like this, you know, strong minded woman. Like, and I think, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of situations where there's not those catalytic people. And I find myself thinking like, how do we teach those basic connection skills to people? Because I know people that I could put in the same situation and they would show up at that woman's door and they wouldn't get, and, and, and they wouldn't make the connection. Do, do, you, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, I think I've thought a lot about what the, this point. I think it's really important. I think I think like one of the problems of being a journalist is that you end up talking to people who know how to talk. Well, I think I think there's several things in what you're in what you're saying. I think you're right that in in a culture poisoned by individualism and consumerism and isolation. People, the the muscles of social contact, social interaction, atrophy. atrophy. Yeah, and we are taught to misread our despair and the pain that causes as something else, right? Uh, as a sign that you need to get more Instagram followers or or buy more useless shit on the internet, or you or need different chemicals in your brain. Yeah, exactly. And so I think you're, I think you're right. I think there's. Several things in that. So you're right that this is that these um, distortions go deep into the bone marrow of the culture that we've built. But remember to come back to something about Cotty in a minute. But what I would say is, in in a paradoxical way, and I don't say this lightly because I know that it's it's an insight that can only be built on terrible suffering and pain. The scale of the crisis is in one sense encouraging because 
what it does, how would I put it? Where, where, where the despair is so deep and so widespread, it becomes harder for it to be pathologized at an individual level. Think about the opioid crisis. More people have died in the opioid crisis since the year 2000 than currently live in the whole of Miami-Dade, right? So imagine tomorrow every man, woman, and child in Miami-Dade dies. That still wouldn't be the death toll from the opioid crisis. That is overwhelmingly about deaths of despair, as Professor Ancase and Professor Angus Dayton have shown. Opioid deaths are highest where suicide not by opioid is highest, where uh, antidepressant prescription is highest, where all sorts of other indicators of despair. In fact, where support for President Trump was highest, which I think is an important point and worth reflecting on in a non-judgmental way. Um, the, 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 so you're talking about huge, huge amounts of despair in the society. That's just one indicator, many indicators. One in three middle-aged women is currently taking a chemical antidepressant and even more are depressed who are not taking them. Yeah, no, it's, the scale is almost universal. Like it's mass and, and COVID now it is actually yeah. fully universal. Yes, yes. So I think what that tells us is that that is not about individual biological malfunctions in people's brains, although there are some real biological contributions that we can talk about in our right back loss connections. It's not about um, individual failures of social skills. I know that you're not saying it is either, but it's not about individual failures of social skills. It's something very deep that's gone wrong in the culture. And, and I think that helps us to see that... Um, you know, when I think, uh, see, think of, mm. Johan, I'm actually almost at the point where I think there might be a universal failure of social skills. That that I think it there might be something where, like, like a language that gets lost, and obviously not universal. But what I'm saying is, is like, I I see so many people who do not know how to make and form and maintain a friendship because their parents did not model that and because the the social media landscape in which they're in, in actually works against that that i i it is to, to me it so, almost feels universal so there's a model uh as you know that i write about in, in lost connections that that uh, i think helps us to overcome this and I think one of the one of the ways we know that people can develop social skills is actually not by, I mean, I think this is actually true of most learning. Most learning is not by being didactically taught something. You know, someone okay. stands over you and tells you something right, right. of insight, right? Most learning is through practice. And and there's a really good model, I think, that helps that has been shown to to deal with this underlying concern you have, which I think is absolutely um, uh, on the money, which is uh, so I actually interviewed one of the Pioneers of it is one of the heroes of my of my book. So um, I'll just very briefly tell his story because uh, so you should have him on the podcast as well. He's a great, great man. Um, so Sam Everington was a general practitioner, a doctor in, in East London, and Sam was really uncomfortable because, like me, he's he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants, but he was getting loads of people come to him with depression and anxiety, huge, huge and growing numbers, and he was. Basically, the only lever he'd been given as a doctor was to give people drugs. And he could see that that did take the edge off for some people, which is often worth doing. But he could see a couple of things. Firstly, for a lot of them, they were still depressed. And secondly, they were depressed on 
perfectly understandable reasons, like they were really lonely. So, so one day, Sam decided to pioneer a different approach. She began quite small. A woman came to see him named Lisa Cunningham, who um, had been uh, shut away in her home with crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs, but I'm also gonna prescribe something else. What I'd like you to do is come twice a week to the doctor's offices here and meet with a group of other lonely people and find something meaningful to do together. It, the purpose is not so you all sit together and talk about how bad you feel. I mean, you could do that if you want, but that's not the point. The point is to find something good to do together that matters to you. So the first time the group met, Lisa literally started vomiting with anxiety because it was so overwhelming. But the group starts talking, they're like, what could they do? These are inner city East London people like me. They knew nothing about gardening, but there was an area behind the doctor's offices that was called Dog Shit Alley, which tells you a bit about what it was like, but it was just like scrubland basically. And they were like, well, we could turn that into a garden. So together, they started to go to the library to get books about gardening. They started to watch YouTube clips together, but they started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. They had a, So the ones that weren't good at social skills, and a lot of, Elisa actually is, but there were a lot of them that weren't. But if you have, a, if you have something to do together, it, it, you then, if you have a shared purpose, that facilitates the development of social skills in a way that just sitting together with nothing to do is very challenging to people with, who haven't yet developed good social skills. So they started to get their fingers in the soil, as I say, um, but they also started to do something even more important. They started to form a tribe. They started to form a group. If one of them didn't show up, they worried about them. They'd kind of call them the next day or go and see them, do you need any help? They started to solve each other's problems. The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. Now this approach is called social prescribing. It's where doctors prescribe for people to take part in groups. It's spreading all over Europe. There's a study in Norway of a very similar program, found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants, right? I think for an obvious reason, because it was actually solving some of the reasons why they felt so bad. Now I think that's a model that helps to remedy by the way, this is incredibly cheap, much cheaper than drugging people, right? It costs almost nothing to get people to go gardening or to do other forms of social activities, um, which is one reason, by the way, why it's not promoted because no one profits from it. But the, except actual depressed and anxious people who obviously- is it, But is it hard to get people to show up? Because like, I would think if somebody was socially isolated, they would lack confidence. And if you said show up for a group, they That's might- not it's not been their experience. I think this is why the nudge of a doctor prescribing it. One of the last forces ah. in our society who are respected, yeah. who, what, probably I would say the last authority we defer to are doctors. And there's something about, if I say to someone, just as a random person, you know, you might benefit from going to this group. They may or they may not. But if your doctor says it is essential for your health, truthfully, the doctor says it's essential for your health for you to take part in this. Oh. Far higher levels of compliance. Oh, you want a crazy one? So two days ago, I'm talking to a woman, inviting her to join a group therapy group that I'm, I'm organizing, okay? And, um, and I get her off the waiting list of a community mental health agency that she's waiting to get an individual counselor, right? Um, and I think like, okay, well, like, look, it, it could be months before you get a counselor. So let's get you in this group. At least you'll get some social touches. It's a, it's a Zoom group, like, you know, for people that are isolated. So I call her and I'm talking to her and she goes, she goes, well, I'm only doing individual counseling because I'm court ordered. Will this count? 
for my court order. And I say, oh, no, it won't. No, it won't. And we talked a little bit longer. And she ended up joining the group anyway, which was glorious. But the point is, a court will order somebody who has anger management issues. They will order somebody who has parenting issues. A lot of times they'll order people into individual counseling, but they never order them into group therapy. Or in your case, social prescribing. Like, it's, it's so interesting to me. Like, they're sort of like, the courts look at people as individuals and they go like, this individual is, you know, malfunctioning or this individual is um, antisocial. So let's deal with him as an individual. And you go like, why is he probably antisocial? Because he doesn't have any meaningful social connections. Maybe you should court order him into a group. Yeah, that's a really good point. So it's remarkable to me. Yeah, we don't have anything like that. Yeah, well, it is actually, um, there are lots of people in the United States who are interested in this this approach. And um, I think you're right that there's all this evidence about, you know, isolation makes people, you mentioned anger management. I mean, isolation makes people incredibly angry, right? Your body floods with cortisol, stress hormone. It is, you know, we've all felt how angry we were under lockdown, even people who are not generally prone to having anger problems, right? I... I think it's a really important, so in, in, in my book about depression, lost connections, I, I go through the scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety that we know about. And um, two of them are factors in our biology and most of them are factors in the way we live. And what, one of them is, is, is loneliness. And it's been kind of heartbreaking and fascinating to see, you know, um, that Many of the factors that I wrote about that that have been scientifically proven to cause depression and anxiety have been massively supercharged under COVID. And lo and behold, anxiety and depression have massively gone up, right? Um, The journalist Andrew Sullivan said it was like the whole society decided to run an experiment to see if what I said in my book was true. Um, (laughs) um, But that's really important to me because the, the pain that we've experienced under COVID can teach us something really important. Let's think about, you know, one of the ones we just talked about, loneliness, right? So I think pretty much everyone would agree, I think it'd be a very odd person who didn't agree, that loneliness has massively increased. And that is a key factor, not the only one, but a key factor why anxiety and depression have massively gone up, right, under COVID. But that should help us to understand the fact that loneliness was massively rising way before COVID. Right. And it was one of the reasons why I'm 42 years old and every year I've been alive, depression and anxiety have gone up in the United States and in Britain. Right. And and um, uh, so you think about just the, what the polling was like before COVID and the research. So there's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have that you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer, not the average, but the most common answer is none. Right. 41% of Americans agree with the statement, nobody knows me well. What is life like? We are we are a social species. I remember Professor John Cassiopo, who was the leading expert on loneliness in the world, saying to me once, um, you know, why are we why are we here? Why do we exist? You, me, everyone listening to this podcast, why 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 are we alive? One key reason is that our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't bigger than a lot of the animals they took down. They weren't faster than the animals they took down a lot of the time, but they were much better at banding together into groups and cooperating. 
Just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe. And we are the first humans ever to disband our tribes, right? If you look at a bee that's cut off from a hive, it goes crazy, right? And despairs. No. Uh, well, perhaps despair is too complex. A psychological phenomenon to ascribe to a bee, but you know what I mean, right? It does not flourish. Exactly. And, and you think about the circumstances where we evolved. If you were cut off from the tribe, you were depressed and anxious for a really good reason. You were in terrible danger, right? That is the instinct we still have. So, of course, this is a key factor in why we cause depression. But I remember having a, a bizarre, it's a sign of how disconnected we have become from these insights. But I remember, so what I just said to you, right, your grandmother or my grandmother, if we could go back in time and ask them, gee, grandma, do you think loneliness makes you more likely to be anxious and depressed? My grandmother would have said, why are you wasting my time asking such a stupidly obvious question, right? These things that would have been banal insights to previous generations. Um, I, would, didn't, I remember after the book came out, I was interviewed on NPR and I said more or less what I just said to you. And the interviewer said to me, well, this is a very controversial argument. And I remember thinking, it's a sign that this culture has gone mad that that is regarded as a controversial well, and, and this argument. Is, and this is the big difference between chasing the scream and lost connections, is I feel like chasing the scream, which was like, hey, what you've been thinking about addictions is wrong. Like, like the experts know a much deeper story, but the common the common understanding of addiction is is wrong. I, I don't know about like I don't know if you would agree with this, but I feel like the conversation about addiction is significantly different than it was ten years ago. Oh, it's huge. The transformation yeah. has been huge. Yeah. yeah, I feel it. You know, and I mean, I, th I think, you know, you can probably go like, I, I had something to do with that. You know, I'm, I'm not the only voice, but like, I feel well, like there's- a small part of a really big movement. Yeah. Lots of amazing people all over the United States and the world who've been pushing back on this. Yeah. But, but I mean, wouldn't you say that? Like you go like, yeah, the conversation's different. And the opioid thing in some sense, I maybe has- has opened that conversation. But I feel like people understand much more that addiction has much more to do with the wider scope of a person's life than it does just with this kind of bizarre medical model that people had. Um, yeah. So yeah. I don't think the same thing is true at all about, about isolation and about depression and anxiety. I, I mean, I'm studying... You know, I'm I'm in a I'm in a counseling a master's program in counseling right now to sort of become official at what I've always been doing, and I do not necessarily see this massive sea change that is happening around our understanding of why people are depressed. But you know, it's so weird, isn't it? Because th there's this peculiar weird gap. There is. If we were to just randomly stop people in the street all over the United States, don't care whether it's you know. A very conservative part of uh, Florida or a, you know, super liberal part of the Bay Area. And we said to them, do you think loneliness makes you more likely to become depressed? Do you think financial insecurity makes you more likely to become depressed? Do you think being sexually abused makes you more likely to become depressed? I could go down the list, right? Um, everyone would say yes, right? At some level, we know everyone knows these things. It's not like I'm explaining rocket science to people. I'm giving people permission to know what they already know. But then you say to people, you know, um, what causes depression? And very often they go, oh, it's some problem with your brain. And, and then there are real brain problems for some people with depression. I can talk about that if you sure. want. But it's one part of a much bigger picture and the, what the changes in the brain interact with the changes in your life. Um, 
So it's this curious thing where intuitively we know the truth, right? Which is the complex truth that depression is a form of despair largely caused by things going wrong in the way we live, right? And there are some biological contributions for some people that can make it worse. We intuitively know that. But what's happened is this very simplistic biological, overly biological story, which contains some truth, but has been taken to explain everything, um, has crowded out these much more common sense insights. And most importantly, although we know loneliness causes depression, sexual abuse causes depression, financial insecurity causes depression, and so on, um, our solutions are not built on those insights, right? There's a disconnection between what we know causes the problem and what we present as the solutions. And there was a moment that became really clear for me in the research for the book. I went to interview a South African psychiatrist called Derek Summerfield, who happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when they first introduced chemical antidepressants for people in that country. And the doctors, he was researching something else. It was just by coincidence it was introduced then. And the doctors there, the local Cambodian doctors, had never heard of chemical antidepressants. So they were like, what are they? And he explained. And they said to him, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he was like, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy like St. John's Wort or something. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine and he got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial leg and some rehab. And after a while, he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's extremely painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial leg. And I'm guessing it's pretty traumatic to go back and work in the fields where you got blown up. The guy started to cry a lot. Eventually he was crying all day and then he just refused to get out of bed. He developed what we would call classic depression. This is when the Cambodian doctors said, oh, well, that's when we gave him an antidepressant. And Derek, Dr. Summerfield said, well, what was it? Um, they explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense. In fact, you only had to listen to hear the guy's story for a few minutes to realize why he was depressed. One of the people in the village figured, if we bought this guy a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't have to go into these fields. He wouldn't be in this position that was screwing him up so much. So the doctors helped to get him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. It never came back. The Cambodian doctors said to Dr. Summerfield, so you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have the last 30 years, that sounds like a joke. I went, I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. She gave me a cow, right? But, but what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what actually the leading medical bodies in the world, like the World Health Organization, have been trying to explain for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not weak, you're not crazy, you're not a machine with broken parts, you're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need is practical help to get those deeper needs met. See, see and this is, the, this is the pernicious thing right now is I know that's true. And what's scary to me as I watch young people growing up around me is, is that what, is that what they need and what they want are massively different. Th that they want to be entertained. They want video games. They want, you know, a, a, the, the, the video game is so much more 
compelling and the and the mastery so much more instantaneous and the the world so much more immersive that on any, for in in any given moment they would rather be in that world than this one and yet the sum total of spending time there hurts them the sum I mean, total I, and so I, I totally get the point you're making I, I yeah. put it slightly differently because I think I think uh, I, what I would say is if you think about an individual who thinks they want to just be playing video games all the time, for example, I, I know people like that. I would, I think we have to ask at what level do they want that? So at some level, they want to be playing video games all the time. Um, another level, they don't feel good when they're playing video games all the time. They may get some, you know, the, the psychiatrist Edward Hallowell said, um, we've replaced connection with stimulation, which I think is what you're, you're getting. Yeah, at. yeah, yeah. Um, but to me, this is part of a, there's several deeper ways I think we need to think about that. The phenomenon you're identifying is exactly right. One, one, one level is um, uh, uh, there's a, a great um, social scientist named Professor Timothy Wilson, who, who's at the University of Virginia, who wrote a, a terrific book called Strangers to Ourselves. Um, which is all about how little any, we don't understand ourselves. Human beings, any human being has a very limited understanding of why we do any of the things we do, right? And he go, he's done amazing, he's had a fantastic career just <clears throat> compiling just incredible scientific evidence that you think you know why you do something, but actually you don't. And we can talk about that if you want. So I think it's partly, that's not, well, the thing you're describing is not an anomaly in human history or human nature, actually none of us understand very well why we do anything. <laughs> so you, these people who say, I, I want to be playing video games all the time, or I want to be, you know, whatever, gambling all the time, or looking at porn all the time, or whatever. At some level, you want to do that. And it may be that you haven't been given any better options in your life, and the environment has not provided you with anything better. Uh, and if the alternative is, you know, absolutely deadening work where you have no control and you feel humiliated, well, I would want to play video games all the time. Or just the instant gratification. The, the, the one thing provides an instant gratification and the other thing requires time to work. Even your story of the village or, or of, the, of the protest, it didn't happen. They did, a person didn't feel connected or, or home on the first day or on the second day. It takes time for those kind of relationships to develop. And there are other, there are other things that will give you an instant bump. Sure. They'll, they'll, they'll give you an instant bump um, but we'll give you, you know, the ancient Greeks had this distinct, I, I know you know this better than I do, but the ancient Greeks had a, had several words for happiness. And, and one word they had for happiness was hedonia, which relates to hedonism in, in modern English. And, you know, hedonism is a great, you know, hedonia is an important part of happiness. It's the feeling you get, you know, when you're dancing at a party. It's the feeling, you know, it's it's the feeling you get when you play a great video game. I personally don't play video games, but the feeling you would get if you play a great video game or, um, you know, it's it's that kind of partying happiness, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is an important part of happiness. But for the ancient Greeks, that was one part of a much more nuanced and textured understanding of happiness. So another uh, word for what we call happiness, which is eudaimonia. And eudaimonia is very different to hedonic happiness. Eudaimonia is when you feel that you've done something satisfying and meaningful, right? Now, you think about something as absolutely essential to the human race as raising children, right? 
There's not a lot of hedonia in raising children. Sometimes you have a great laugh with your child, but most of it is drudgery, you know, uh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and tedium, but it has a huge amount of eudaimonia. You love your child and you know that it's meaningful and important to craft this small human into a good human, right? So, um, yeah, no, this reminds me of Martin Sigelman, the founder of Positive Psychology. You know, he wrote a book on happiness and then realized like that was too shallow a word. And his second book was called Flourish. And he said, hey, there are five things that people that flourish have. And one of them is positive emotions, you know, hedonia. Um, but the other one was, you know, meaning, like meaningful connect relationships. Um, uh, one of them was mastery, like the idea that you're getting good at something. Um, so, so, so it was, it was this, and he said, you know, if it was just about positive emotions, nobody would have children, yes. um, <laughs> but it's about connection and connection's really important too. And so, you know, he, th th so you get this larger sense and, and my, like, I think you and I would be like totally agreed on that part of it. The question I'm trying to figure out is, have you discovered anything either in your personal life or in your research that there's a way and maybe it was you that told this story, or maybe I heard it somewhere else, of these uh, Aboriginal people that were very healthy in their lives, uh, living this Aboriginal life. And then some of them moved into Australian cities and they started eating Australian diets and they got fat and very unhealthy and high blood pressure and stuff. And they found that like, if they went out and lived and walked around and, and lived in the old Aboriginal way, that was a very healthy lifestyle for them, but they didn't want that. The TV and the, the Twinkies were too alluring for them. And so the question is, do we have any way, have you seen any way where we've been able to convince people to step away from the instant hedonia? Yes, but I would just say, uh, it's important to understand Aboriginal Australians, because I think it's an interesting uh, way of thinking about it. So. Do you know it's the story I'm talking about? Yeah, but it's not something I've studied, but I think it's worth bearing in mind the context of that. Aboriginal Australians were driven off of their land. They were murdered. They were subjected to a genocide. Their whole way of living was destroyed. Their children was taken from them. They were deeply traumatized, beaten down and driven into despair. And then they preferred to sit in front of the television. So I don't think it's like, they, it would be wrong to present it as if they, they had this great life, but they chose this yeah, yeah, destructive and, and, life. And a point well taken, point well taken. The, the, the actual people that he was talking about were people that had been living very happily in this Well, no, they were, that, that can't be right because there were no Australian Aboriginal people who were not subjected to genocide. Yeah, okay, and they all had right. their children taken from them. That makes perfect sense now so that, that you say it that way. All right. But, 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 but I understand the the... the he, on a purely physiological level, what he was saying is, is that there was a hunter-gatherer lifestyle that was better for people's hearts and, and bodies. And it's, you know, and that when they would, when, when and, and maybe it was part of some kind of study or maybe it was some, for some experiment, but when the Aboriginal people went back to living in a more traditional fashion, their physical health got better. But then they were just like you and me. Like I go like, when I put away my cell phone for a week and go on, like when I take kids on a retreat and, we, and there's no TVs and we take away the cell phones and teenagers spend a weekend just interacting, playing games, going on walks. They go like, this was the best weekend of my life. This was great. And I go, like, it was so great not to have phones and, and TVs. I feel so free. And you go back and you go, so you're not going to use your phones anymore. And you're not going to watch TV. And like, no, we're going to go right back to it. It's very hard to do that, which we know works for us. So I would, I would, I think, in, I think you're raising a lot of really important things, and I think that um, 
One, there are many frameworks through which we have to think about the phenomenon you're describing. One of them, I think, is what I would call junk values. So uh, and I, we all know that junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick. And uh, as you can see from my chins, I'm not alien to that. But the um, there's equally strong evidence that a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. So but for thousands of years, philosophers said, if you think life is about money and status and showing off, you're going to feel like shit, right? That's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that is basically what he said. But, but weirdly, nobody had scientifically studied this until an amazing man I got to know named Professor Tim Kasser, who is at Knox College in Illinois, actually just retired from Knox College in Illinois. And, and Professor Kasser uh, did all sorts of incredible research that I can talk to you about, but the, the, the heart of... The most important part, I think, for the purposes of what we're talking about is he discovered two things. Firstly, the, the more you think life is about money and status and showing off, the values that are inculcated by Instagram and advertising and everything like them, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious by a significant amount. And secondly, as a society, as a culture, we've become much more driven by those factors. So, which is one reason, one of the reasons why it's the nine causes of depression that I write about in Lost Connections. There's strong evidence for it. Uh, so it's it, it, it's like a kind of, remember that book called Chicken Soup for the Soul? It's like we've been fed a kind of KFC for the soul, right? We've been trained <laughs> okay. to seek happiness in all the wrong places, right? And that's a, and, 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 and that's a material, like that is a capitalism driven function where people go like, listen, I know this isn't healthy for you, but I can sell it. The things that are healthy, I can't sell. Well, so Professor Kasser put it to me, we live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is important about life, right? You look at the, the uh, there's a study that looked at 18-month-old children in the United States. More of them knew what the McDonald's M meant than knew their own last name. So from the moment you are born, you are inculcated with a series of stories about how you should respond to your feelings. If you don't feel good, treat yourself. Go and buy something. Um eat something, eat something that looks a lot like fried chicken, right? Um, indulge yourself at work to get some crap you don't need and display it on social media to make other people jealous. This is the grammar of the society in which we live, right? That is the, the deep grammar of the society in which we live, the deepest stories we have about ourselves. Um, so what did, you guy fig what did your guy figure out? So lots of things. There's got to be a social response and an individual response. So, for example, I went to Sao Paulo in Brazil. They banned advertising. All outdoor advertising was banned, right? There are all sorts of things that Professor Kasser showed uh, as the advertising goes up as a proportion of GDP, teenage anxiety goes up, right? So there's a huge amount we can do to just regulate and ban all kinds of advertising and regulate very toughly. In London, for example, where I'm from, there was a uh, advertising campaign, I think it was three years ago, four years ago. It just said, are you beach body ready? And it was a picture of two people who have bodies that less than 0.1% of Londoners are ever going to achieve. The clear implication being, if you don't have a body like this, you ain't ready for the beach, right? And the Mayor of London just banned it. So this makes people feel like shit. Um... It, it, it's cruel. It's a, uh, and it started a whole wave that these things were, uh, there was a whole wave of people vandalizing before it was banned, people vandalizing these ads. And it just said that, I thought it was quite funny. People just were spraying on it, advertising shits in your head, 
which I thought was a brilliant like phrase, right? And um, so at a social level, we can um, just ban a lot of this poisoning, you know, we don't have to allow it. We don't allow people to, uh, we, don't, we don't allow leaded petrol or leaded paint because it damages you physically and mentally. We, we shouldn't allow the psychological equivalence of them, right? I'm a free speech absolutist, but the commercial speech is different to the speech of ordinary citizens, right? We not don't here, allow, not in this country. Well, Citizens United. Persons, we don't allow, well, I, yeah, I, mean, I don't, I think we should pack the Supreme Court and overthrow uh, Citizens United, but corporations are not people, contrary to the funding of the Supreme Court. And, uh, but there are forms of commercial speech that even within Citizens United are regulated, like tobacco companies are not allowed to right, do, right, right, right. Joe Camel, advertising yeah, like, to kids. We need to extend that commonsensical exactly. sense of there are messages that are not helpful. Exactly. So there's social responses, and that's just one of many social responses that we can get these toxic messages. I mean, the fact that schools play adverts to children, right, uh, because they get funded by these companies is just outrageous. Um, there's all sorts of ways we can do that. There's a, a group called, I think it's called Campaign for an Advertising Free Childhood, if people want to get involved in this, and they should look up Professor Kasser, and obviously I write about him in the book as well. So that's, that's at a social level. At an individual level, Professor Kasser was involved in a really interesting experiment that I think people should try to do in their own lives, anyone listening. So this guy called Nathan Dungan, who I interviewed, uh, who teamed up with Professor Kasser. So Nathan is a financial advisor in Minneapolis, and he advises people on household budgets, how you can budget better. And one day Nathan got called by a, a school in Minneapolis, and they said, look, we've got a problem. Could you come in and help us? And the problem was that these kids were getting obsessed with getting things like the latest Nike sneakers, the latest iPhone, and they were really freaking out if they didn't get it. It was kind of middle-class area. It wasn't a poor school, but it wasn't a rich school either. Uh, and the parents were getting really stressed out because they just couldn't afford this, this shit. Uh, and so they said, school said to Nathan, will you come in and just talk to the kids about budgeting? And just explain household budgets. So we came in and Nathan very quickly realized these kids did not give a shit about household budgets, right? Yeah, yeah. They were like, we want the iPhone, right? Uh, so he realized there's something deeper going on here. So that's when he teamed up with Press Casa and they did this experiment. And basically what they set up was kind of Alcoholics Anonymous for consumerism and for these junk values. So what they did is they got teenagers and their parents to come in. I think it was once every couple of weeks for quite a long time, six months or something. And the first session, they just said to people, they just said to everyone, we just want you to make a list of everything you've got to have. And they didn't give them any guidance on what that meant. And of course, everyone says, first, well, you need food, you need shelter, right. whatever. But quite quickly, people were putting, both the parents and the teenagers were putting in things that no, no sane person would say you've got to have, right? You don't Cable have TV. To have. Yes. Exactly. You don't have to have the latest iPhone. You don't have to have whatever handbag they named or whatever fancy car or whatever. Um, and then they said to them, Talk about, just discuss how you would feel different if you got this thing. How would you feel different if you got these Nike sneakers? And what was fascinating was, very rarely did people talk about whatever the ostensible purpose of that thing was. So for example, no one said, or virtually nobody said, well, I want these Nike sneakers because I'm a basketball player and I'll be able to jump higher, right? No one said, uh, you know, well, I, I, I want to have this handbag because it's a really good handbag that stores it all this really stuff. It would really hold all my stuff. <laughs> so exactly, well. right? No one said that, right? What people said was, it didn't take long before people said, well, people would envy me or I would, I, I would belong to the group. And just getting people to say that out loud, you don't need to get, you don't need to nudge them much further. People go, huh, why do I feel that? 
Where did that idea come from, right? So just getting people to articulate the logic of their junk values in itself leads them to question it. And then the next bit was, for me, even more important. Well, what's interesting, wait, wait, can I interrupt yeah, sure. you? Sure, sure, of course. Yeah. I'm sorry. Like, I'm like, what's interesting about that is if a person wants a sense of belonging or a sense of social status, I'm not even, I'm not even worried about that. I, I, I almost want to intervene and say, is there a more effective way of belonging <laughs> yeah. to a group? Like, yeah. for instance, what if you listened to other people's problems they would find you to be indispensable. Um, you, know, w w you know, is there a better way to be enviable and go like, yeah, like what if you cultivated um, a, a garden uh, or, 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 or did yeah. something? What if, what if you learned, if you could recite a poem? Like, like in a, in a, what if you learned to sing a song? Like there are other ways to be enviable than consumer goods. It's, exactly, just, but we but we live. You're, you're absolutely right, and this is partly what they discovered next. So I'll come to in a second. But go, go, I'm sorry. I, no, yeah. no, no. You're totally right. It's a really important point because we live on a consumerist autopilot, right? From the moment we are born, we are bombarded with these messages all the time, right? Um, and, and and of course, at some level, we know it's not true. It, again, if we stop people in the street and said to them, "When you lie on your deathbed," Do you think you're going to think about all the shoes you bought and all the likes you got on Instagram? Or do you think you're going to think about moments of love and meaning and connection in your lives, right? Or, or more mean, importantly, when, you're, when, you're, when, when your friend is on his deathbed, will you be mm. thinking, God, that guy had great sneakers. That's why, <laughs> that's why I liked him so much. He was great on Snapchat, right? It's not... You know, it's not how we're going to think. So it's, again, it comes back to that weird thing about the gap between what we know and what we do, right? And of course, that gap is these systems that pollute and poison our minds. So you think about the next stage of what they did in this experiment was once they got people to deconstruct their junk values, they would say to them, what could you just write about and discuss among yourselves moments in your life when you have actually had a sense of meaning and purpose. And people would name different things. Some people it would be um, playing the guitar. Some people it was writing. That's what it'd be for me. Some people it was, you know, helping another person they knew. A whole range of things. And they said to people, well, how could you spend, how could you build more of your life around pursuing those meaningful values and less of your life around these junk values where you're following a script written for you by advertising. And then they would just check in. You know, every every couple of weeks they come to the meetings. They just raise awareness and, and see if awareness, self-awareness had any impact. Well, a combination of awareness and and starting that conversation. We don't really have these conversations in our culture. Right, right. Very rarely do we have conversations where we go, when what moments did you find meaningful in your life? How could you do that more? Right. And what they found was just having these conversations, coming back two weeks later going, you know what? I, I remembered that I felt meaningful playing the guitar. Every night now I play the guitar for 15 minutes and I feel great and I'm going to join a band, right? Whatever it was, just starting the conversation and knowing that you'd have to check in with everyone. That led to a measurable and significant change in people's values, right? So it's stop, stop. I mean, we, mm. Yeah. So, I mean, stop for a second. <laughs> And like, could, like, because you know, the people that listen to my podcast, like, the, like the, the, the conceit of the podcast is, I'm going to talk to somebody who's doing something interesting in the world, and we're gonna, and the conversation is going to revolve around what they've learned in their life and in their work that we can use to be more human and to have better relationships. 
And like, you're going like, you know, that's like, this is like an underlying moment where you go like, starting a conversation like the one you just described, the conversation did the work. Like, yeah. like there, huh. that was the intervention, wasn't it? Just if we talked about these things more, the insight that we would gain from it would, would affect our behavior is what I hear you saying. Yeah, and it comes to, funny, it's another thing I learned at Cotty, which was in a sense, the thing they fought for, which was rent control, actually in itself reduces depression, but because being frightened you're gonna be thrown out of your home makes you feel like shit. Uh, again, no shit, Sherlock. You know, when, you, when, you know, when you're in poverty, like they say, money doesn't buy happiness. And you're like, well, when you're in poverty, actually, a certain amount of money does buy happiness. Exactly. Up to a certain level, it does. And then beyond that, it doesn't. But but, but, but in Cotton, one of the things I learned is, okay, so that helped. But actually, in one sense, the struggle was the solution, right? Just the act of banding together and doing something together, whether it was the gardening program in East London, the Cotty protests in Berlin, and we've seen this all over the world. Uh, the struggle is the solution. You're, I think you put it really well. The conversation did the work. The conversation is transformative. Conversation is a path out of isolation. The conversation is a path out of junk values. And the conversation is transformative in all sorts of complicated and simple ways, right? So um, I think, you're, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I think um, I would really urge everyone listening, actually just do that. Like, once every, just to stay with your friends, once a month, we're going to have this conversation, right? So I've got a question. Because mm. one of the things you said is, you know, there's often a gap between what we know and and, and what we do. Yeah. And, and, you know, whether we have, and I'm wondering like, you. I don't know if you would have called yourself an addict at any point in your life, but you wrote a book about addiction. Mm. We're addiction in my family, so yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I know that you were depressed and I know, like, and I know <laughs> that you, like, like, I know this. Um, and you've learned a lot of things about addiction and about drugs and about depression and anxiety. And I guess what I'm wondering is, is at the end of the day, do you feel like you have been able to incorporate what you've learned out there? into your own life? Do you feel more connected now? Do you feel, do you feel more able to kind of, kind of navigate in the world than you used to? Yeah, I always try to, uh, whenever I'm asked this, uh, I always try to caveat it in several ways. So the first is, um, I think about a close relative of mine who's a struggling single mother who works every hour she can uh, just to pay the rent and collapses at the end of the day and is too tired to even watch television. And I'm conscious that I was able to change my life because of a lot of privileges I had. You know, I wrote a book that sold well. And so I had a bigger margin to change my life. And I think it can be kind of a bit cruel to kind of go, uh, yeah, I changed my life. And you can can too, dear reader. And actually a big part of what I argue in Lost Connections is uh, we need to change the society so more people are able to make changes, right? I mean, a very clear example is in Canada in the 1970s, in a place called Dauphin in Manitoba, they introduced a universal basic income. Uh, Small experiment, just gave everyone uh, or a very large number of people a guaranteed little income, just said, you don't have to do anything for it. We just want you to have a good life. And many things happened, but there was a massive fall in all mental health problems 
but mental health problems that were so severe, people had to be shut away in psychiatric hospitals, massively fell, right? So we'll start by saying, caveat it in the, yes, I was able to make changes, but I, but that's because I was privileged and we should spread that privilege We should privilege society. more people, yes. Exactly, well, we should privilege everyone with, margin, with some margin to change their lives and a lot of people don't have that margin. Yeah, I made a lot of changes. Uh, and, and I acted on a lot of the insights that I was taught by the people that I that I met. One was a, a kind of shift in in junk values. I was never someone who was motivated by um, kind of consumerism in the sense of like wanting objects. I was actually nominated for an award as the worst dressed gay man in Britain. That's a sign of how little I care about that stuff. But um, I, I did care about status in the sense of things like. And of course, I still do to some degree, but I've really tried to countervail this part of myself uh, status in the sense of like, I don't know, social media following, showing off, accol public accolades, that kind of thing. Um, but for me, actually, one of the biggest was something we haven't, uh, we've kind of alluded to, but not talked about, which was a different thing, which was um, in relation to um, uh, childhood trauma and... So there's a lot of evidence that childhood trauma, I actually think the way this is talked about has been also well-intentioned, but in some ways harmful. So what there's been a much bigger discussion of childhood trauma in the last 30 years, which is a really positive advance. And an important scientific fact has been explained to people. And I, I interviewed the scientist who discovered this, and I'd love to talk about him because he's a great man. Um, which is that people who experience childhood trauma are much more likely to become depressed, anxious, and addicted in later in life, which is a really important insight. But my worry is that what people hear from that is something that it, um, I think what I heard from it for a long time is something that is in fact not true or, or is, is um, where the truth is more complicated, which is some people hear from that Oh God, well, I had a traumatic childhood, so I'm just broken now, right? Jeez, I'm screwed. I'm going to be depressed and anxious and addicted. And actually, it turns out it's not the trauma that destroys you. It's the shame about the trauma. There's a guy called Professor Steve Coles at UCLA. He's a, a, a brilliant social scientist who did a, a pioneering study of this. He looked at um, gay men. This is the height of the AIDS crisis. And it turned out closeted gay men died on average two years earlier than openly gay men, even when they got healthcare at exactly the same time. Why would that be? It's because shame destroys you, right? Shame physically and psychologically destroys you. Yeah, and, and, it, and it isolates you. Profoundly isolates you. And, and there's lots of reasons why it destroys you. Isolation, self-perception, there's all sorts of factors. And people like Professor James Pennebaker, who's at Florida State University, have also done a lot of work on this. Um, and and what, what, what has been discovered, and I can talk about how if you want, but what's been discovered is releasing shame is a profound antidepressant, right? It improves your physical and mental health enormously. And um, I realized the degree to which, uh, so when I was a child, I, was, uh, I experienced some very extreme abuse from an adult in my life. Um, and I realized, so there's some kind of simple ways in which that played out in my adult life. Uh, if you are, most people who experience abuse are told by their abuser that they deserve it, right? 
you made me do this. Uh, I'm doing this because you're bad. Of course, it's an attempt by the abuser to transfer their own toxicity and shame onto the recipient of the abuse. Um, and, you know, when you're a child, you're not able to defend yourself, well, physically often and psychologically from that. Uh, and you internalize that and you think, yeah, I'm not someone who deserves to be treated well. I'm not someone who deserves happiness or success or whatever it might be. And again, uh, talking about that in safe ways with people that you trust and seeing through that, you know, of course, as an adult, there was never a time in my life as an adult when I would have, if you had described to me a child being abused, where it would have even crossed my mind to say the child deserved it, right? And yet, I would regard someone who thought that as, as very mentally disturbed and in need of help. And yet at some unconscious level, I did think that about myself, right? So being able to think that through is a very powerful antidepressant, as indeed the evidence shows that um, uh, Professor Vincent, sorry, Dr. Vincent Felitti uh, in San Diego, who's done really important work on this, found that, um, so they, they, they got, Everyone who came for medical health care in San Diego was given a, a medical questionnaire that just asked them, did you experience any of these 10 bad things as a child? Things like sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect. And then it said, have you had any of these problems as an adult? Like, Yeah, um, it's, I think this is called the ACEs study. Yeah, the Adverse Childhood, childhood Experience, yeah. exactly. And exactly, and so asked about, have you had any of these problems like obesity, injecting drug use, that kind of thing? And, and it discovered these extraordinary Correlations. Uh, cor I mean, staggering. If you've, if you had experienced six categories of childhood trauma, you were three thousand one hundred percent more likely to have attempted suicide, and four thousand six hundred percent more likely to have an injecting drug problem. And, and and you also like high blood pressure, like like just basic physical maladies. Yeah, also, exactly. Are, yeah. But what they discovered that to me is the most important finding is not that, although that's really important to know. So after they've done this study and they found this, they obviously had all this data where people had explained that they experienced childhood trauma. So their doctors were told, don't call them back, but next time they come in, say to them something like, I see that when you were a child, you were sexually abused or whatever the nature of abuse was. I'm really sorry that happened to you. That should never have happened. Would you like to talk about it? And 40% of people did not want to talk about it, but 60% of people did. And they wanted to talk about it on average for five minutes. But what's fascinating was it was a study and then it was randomized. Some of them were told you can be referred to a therapist to talk about it more. What was fascinating was just those five minutes of an authority figure saying, I'm so sorry, that should never have happened to you. That alone led to a really significant fall in depression and anxiety. Mm. Um, and it comes back to what we're saying about doctors being authority figures that yeah, we listen yeah, yeah. to. How many people who've been through abuse never get told, I'm really sorry that happened. You should have been protected and this should never have happened. Not that many, right? That in itself is an extraordinarily healing thing to be, to be, to be told. It's a bit like what we're saying about loneliness and just being told, oh, you're depressed. It's probably because you're really lonely. Let's, I'm prescribing for you to be part of a group, right? These are very basic insights. They're not Rocket science. Right, and basic not, interventions. Yeah, these are basic yeah. interventions. And yet they're basic interventions that we do not do in our culture, right? That are what we've done, one person put it well, to and me I mean, there. I mean, even on, on a purely like, you want to talk about an authority figure, like on a purely parental basis, many hmm. of, you know, when you say it's not the trauma, it's the shame. Most of the most horrific stories I hear of childhood abuse 
the the the, the most da- damaging part of it was that when the child takes it to the adult that should have said, "Oh my, I'm so sorry. This shouldn't have happened." And 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 address it. They're told, "Don't tell anybody." Or or ignored, or I think you're lying, or it's- well, and this is an area in which the culture has got much better. Right? I think that's it's true. important to say that there are there are some things we've been talking about, like loneliness, that gotten worse. There has been an extraordinary transformation in the way we talk about childhood sexual abuse. That has been unbelievably positive. It's thanks to people who broke taboos very bravely. Uh, Oprah actually was was one of the first, I think did the first TV show ever to talk about sexual abuse in the United States. Herself a survivor of sexual abuse. Um, there's been a, comp- I mean, in Britain, we had this this enormous scandal uh, that's quite hard to explain to Americans because it's so weird and disturbing. But there was a man named Jimmy Savile who was, when I was a child, the most popular person in Britain. And the equivalent would be, if you imagine if Mr. Rogers, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dick Clark and Jimmy Carter post-presidency were all the same person, Right. So he presented the main children's show. He presented the main like pop music show and he raised enormous amounts of money for charity. So he was literally the most admired person in Britain. And his TV show was called Jim Will Fix It. And every child in Britain at school would write to this show. And the idea was you'd write to him and you'd say what you wanted. Like, I want to ride a train. I want to, I want to drive a train. I want to have my body made out of chocolate, whatever it it's might like be. It's like a one-man Make-A-Wish foundation. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly the right analogy. Jimmy Savile died seven or eight years ago. And it emerged after he died that he was the most extreme pedophile in British history. He'd raped thousands of children. His show had been a front for raping children. I mean, even more extreme things. He was a necrophile. He, 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 there's some evidence suggesting he raped his own mother's corpse. I mean, it's very hard to get you around. He's like a character from the Marquis de Sade. He's like a, the most ex- insanely, um, yeah, so imagine the shock that Americans would feel if you discovered that Mr. Rogers had been using his show to rape children, right? It's just very, but, but one of the things that's been, uh, fascinating thinking about Jimmy Savile, there's a very good book about him called Hidden in Plain Sight by a guy called Dan Davies, excellent book. Um, Difficult to read, but excellent. It's one of the things that happened. One of the reasons Jimmy Savile got away with what he did for so long is that there was a profound taboo about sexual abuse. And in fact, worse than that, there was this view that if children had been abused, they were kind of ruined. There's this kind of bizarre fetishization of virginity and this idea that if if people knew a child had been ruined by being abused by a child, and obviously your listeners can't see this, but I'm putting ruined in inverted commas, obviously, because it's an insane way of thinking. Um, Uh, Wait, wait, I grew up evangelical Christian, so... Right. uh, So did you hear those kind of things? Oh, yeah. I mean, in evangelical Christianity, if you had had sex before you got married, you were damaged goods. And so imagine how much... You know, just that very open, like they would say that in youth group to us, you know. Hmm. And so if you can imagine that, that you could be ruined by a consensual thing, can you imagine how much more a childhood sexual abuse thing? And so, yeah, in the church, it was a very, it was a very, very hard thing for anybody to share about. That's so important because I was thinking about this, funny enough, I was thinking about this the other day in relation to, you know, uh, Prince Harry and Meghan just did this big interview with Oprah. And I was thinking about when, so when Diana... Harry's mother got married to 
Prince Charles in, um, I don't like using these titles because I think the British monarchy is absolutely ridiculous phenomenon, but when-, when, when that's, t- the book, and, uh, that's the book you wrote that nobody ever talks about anymore. <laughs> and it really enrages me that um, my taxes pay for this bullshit. But the, um, but, but when, when Diana marries Charles, she's 19 years old and there's this huge public debate, is she a virgin? And her uncle goes on television just before the wedding to reassure the British people that Diana is a virgin, right? You think about how insane that is. That's in my lifetime, that's 1981, right? That, that seems literally mad to us now. I, I cannot conceive that anyone asked Meghan if she was a virgin before she married Harry, right? And if they had, they would have been regarded as just a lunatic, right? So you think about the transformation that's happened in the culture, a very positive transformation, obviously in the case of Diana and Meghan, I'm not talking about sexual abuse, but but the, the there's been a, a, a profound change in, well, the taboo around childhood sexual abuse has ended. And, and so um, a kid's much more like, a kid's much less likely to share it with an adult and be and be shunt, shunted under the under the rug, it still. I, mean, happens. I think it would not happen. It would be very. I mean, if, oh, if, it, ha- if, it still happens. I think it would be so. I think what happened with Jimmy Savile wouldn't happen. Which is no. What happened with Jimmy Savile is we now know it's not like he. I mean, actually, one of the things that Jimmy Savile did was kind of like the name of the book. He hid it in plain sight. He. I mean, he. Yeah, Michael Jackson. Who, Michael Jackson hid. It in yes, plain exactly. Sight. Exactly. Michael Jackson's a very good. Analogy as well. I mean, if you watch Finding Neverland, that absolutely, if you've seen it, devastating. Um, yeah. Um, uh, I know the guy, who, who, brilliant director who made that as well. And the, the um, yeah, you think about, I mean, it's amazing when you watch that now and you think, well, we, what did we think we were looking at when Michael Jackson would land in a country and the news announcer would go, here is Michael Jackson with his 10-year-old friend. And then people watch that interview by Martin Bashir, the British journalist, where we're seeing that Michael Jackson is boasting that he shares a bed with these prepubescent boys. Like, again, very, he's a very good analogy with Jimmy Savile. But he sang um, really well. I, I mean, I love Thriller. Oh, actually, I felt really... One of the weirdest... <laughs> when I watched Finding Neverland, the um, documentary... I had two responses. One was, this is absolutely horrific. This is heartbreaking. These are really heroic people. I'm really glad they've spoken out. And the second was, I felt really guilty because I hadn't listened to any Michael Jackson in ages. Guiltily, I was like, oh, but they're really good songs. And so I was like, guiltily for the next three weeks, I was listening to Man in the Mirror on my uh, on Spotify and yeah. thinking like, oh no, I shouldn't be, you know. I mean, obviously you should be able to separate people's songs. I mean, Elvis was also a- Sure, I mean, but, 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 I mean, but there is, you know, you say like, how do these people, you know, like people are, we're more prone to turn a blind eye when we really like some what somebody. Yeah. You know, well, so. what did we think we were looking at? You think about how deep that taboo is- that we, that these people were doing it right in front of us and we didn't want to see it, right? So that's a piece of incredible progress that's happened in the culture. One of many pieces of progress that have happened in the culture, right? Um, and it's always important to stress both the good thing changes that happened as well as the uh, negative changes. All right, so so listen, um, I'm, I'm, you know, obviously like, can you tell your title to somebody who really cares about like community and connection and friendship? No. Like, like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's the problem. Like, like I could, like, like we could go forever. Uh, Cause I, I'm just, this is my, right now. This is just not right now for the last 40 years. My, my passion has been, I just see a lot of lonely people in the world and that loneliness leads to them being vulnerable 
to sexual abuse or leads to them being vulnerable to drug addiction or leads to them being vulnerable to suicide and depression. And so, you know, for me, it's, it's really all about trying to create connection and trying to equip people to form those connections. Um, that's why I was like sort of interested in, you know, how's it going for you? Um, you know, and, and, and I, I do find myself like hoping that there in London, you have a circle of friends now. You know, oh that, yeah, I've, I've always had amazing friends. Even, you know, when I was a child, I had amazing friends. I've always been incredibly lucky in that respect. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. It, 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 it matters a lot um, because I think that, yeah, it just matters a lot. I'm not going to take another half hour of your time, but I do want to ask, like, I want to know what the next book's about. Oh, well, I, so because the expensive bit of what I do is the travel, I'm always working on a few books. So the book I've just finished is about, which I'm not allowed to talk about more than just saying what it's about, but all my publishers will tease me. But um, it's about why so many people are struggling to pay attention and focus and how we can solve that crisis. Okay. Um, And the other two books I'm working on are a biography of Noam Chomsky. Uh, which I've been working on for ages with his corporation. And the other one is, uh, I'm not meant to talk about at all, but it's about Las Vegas and something that is happening in Las Vegas. I'm not meant to say anything more than that. Well, you know, because what's happening in Las Vegas, at least for the time being, has to stay there. Exactly. (laughs) Sadly, not all the uh, COVID infections that people are getting when they go to Vegas and then leave, but you know, that doesn't stay in Vegas. Well, what made me laugh is because like, when I I reached out to you, um, you were sort of like, oh yeah, I I wanted to talk to you, you know, because you'd seen like- Yeah, yeah, because that's my Changing Minds book, which I will write at some point. Oh, okay. Because I was like, I was like, Las Vegas, no, Um, no, no. Oh, yeah, so that's, no. at some point I'm oh. going to write about this book about uh, that I was saying it's why I met Dave Fleischer which is where we came in um, yeah what, how people change and I've been gathering loads of interviews and research for that but I, that's, that's, well, that's uh, you know, as somebody the spent, queue after as somebody the, who spent 30 years as, a, as an evangelical Christian evangelist exactly um, this is why and, I want to and ask now, you and now as a humanist evangelist if you will trying to win <laughs> secular people over to meaning yes, and, and, yes. And, and, and to connection um, yeah no this, this that, yeah that'll be a fun conversation when we have it definitely hooray I can't thank you enough oh thank you it's really lovely to have this conversation and I really appreciate you engaging with these issues yeah I I just um, I'm just I'm just and and I guess I mean sort of thank you for the conversation but also like the work is really important to me Um, I'm just really I'm you know like I'm older than you so I'm allowed to in a big brotherly way say I'm proud of you Oh, thank you. That's I'm, very kind. Yeah, I'm proud, of, I'm proud of what you're doing. And, oh, uh, appreciate that. Yeah. So so this was just a delight for me. If oh, and when- I'm too British to receive compliments. In Britain, you're trained to never- That's a response to a compliment. It should, the, the proper- I, I, It's sufficiently American now because I spend so much of my time in the US that I've stopped doing it when I'm with Americans. But in the appropriate British thing, no British person would ever say what you just said. Yes. But- in the extremely unlikely event that one British person maybe had a head injury and said that to another British person, <laughs> uh, what you're then meant to do is immediately make a self-deprecating joke yes. about yourself, right? But I've learned to stop doing that with Americans because they actually then think you've got like a psychological problem where you can't, yeah. So it's a very deep American. It's one of the most one of the many delightful things about Americans: the willingness of Americans to say nice things to each other, which is uh, yeah, yeah. We don't do in Europe. It's a fine right? quality. Ever. Yes, yeah. Exactly. Never. Yeah. We never do that. All right. Well, I'm, thank you for receiving it. Hooray! I really enjoyed this bar. Thank you so much. And thank you to John as well. You're invisible. See you, my brother. Brilliant. See, See you my guys brother. soon. Yeah. Cheers. Bye.
All right, that was it. That was me and Johan Hari talking for a long time. A long time. And a good time. And I hope you enjoyed it. And it's enough humanize me for one day. Uh, we'll see you next time. Yeah, we're, we're all going to catch our breath. We're all going to take a nap. And then we'll be back. See you next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at humanize me pod on Twitter and humanize me podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search humanize me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424 424- 291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life. Oh,